0: You're listening to the Road to Wisdom podcast, weaving stories told by wonderful minds about all things motherhood, health, intimacy, politics, nature,
1: and everything in between. Join us on an adventure discovering unique experiences that we can learn from to enhance the ways in which we live. We are your hosts, Chloe and Kishia. Welcome everyone to the Road to Wisdom podcast. Um, Today we have the incredible Rhea Dempsey come join us um, to talk all about birth, which um, I feel like we say this often when we have guests, but it's very convenient for us at the moment because (laughs) we will be going into that space again. And I think talking positively about birth and trusting your body and your baby is the best thing you can do when you're pregnant. So we're very lucky to have you today, Ria. Um, yes. I'll give you a brief intro- introduction. Um, so Rhea is the author of two books, Birth with Confidence and Beyond the Birth Plan. Um, I've read Birth with Confidence. It's fantastic. I haven't got to um, Beyond the <laughs> Birth Plan yet, but I... I've listened to you talk. Um, we were talking earlier about um, the podcast you've done that you haven't listened to, but I've listened to them, so <laughs> they were great.
2: <laughs>
1: um, yeah, and yeah, and now you do um, birth education and everything about birth, everything <laughs> about birth, everything about birth. Yeah, I do. like yeah. conferences and things like that. So maybe I'll just say,
2: in terms of you now, I used to do births of course lots and lots and lots and over many many years I don't know nearly 2000 I think can you imagine wow how glorious it is to have that sort of energy be exposed to that sort of energy and do all that and all those kids and now lots of those babies who I whose births I was at are having babies and so I'm a grandmother myself me, virtually with my own family and also somehow or other energetically grandmother to Lots of babies coming in. It's pretty brilliant. Um, I don't do births now apart from the ones that I absolutely can't refuse, which is my own grandchildren, and I've just had that privilege of being at each of the births of the children in my extended family in the next generation. So that's pretty yummy to wow. imagine that, being that sort of lineage lineage of um, family life. Um but not really doing birth, but, you know, writing those books, that was my labour of love in big ways. And I do actually now far, far, far too much birth debriefing. Far, far, far too much. And I mean, it's necessarily, necessary and important, but it's, it breaks my heart and it fires my passion. So that childbirth educator in me is, is as passionate now, probably more so than... Way, way back when I started, because things are getting worse and worse and worse for the certainly that situation about normal physiological childbirth. And so I'm pretty passionate in the whole thing.
1: Yeah, which is really incredible considering <laughs> like listening to your birth story, and which is, I guess, where you started your entire journey into the birth world. But I actually, um, I found so many similarities with my own first birth. I mean, I I was quite lucky in the way that I didn't have intervention when I was in labour. But when you spoke about your baby being taken off you at the beginning... ...and I had that happen to me. And I'm like, how are they still doing that? And it's wild because the things that you experienced that sent you on this trajectory... ...are not just still happening... But worse is happening now to pe- to women in the hospital system, and it just blows my mind, like how it's gotten significantly worse. Significantly worse, and then yeah, it's just. Um, I mean, we'll go into it, but you start seeing women running from the, like running to the hills from the hospital system now when they're pregnant, and um, and then that comes with a whole lot of judgment too, which is wild when you're like okay you can have this terrible option (laughs) but if you do anything else you're going to get all this judgment and criticism and I mean you'll get (laughs) cancelled in some situations (laughs) as well um yeah so I just I look I really appreciate your book because it does I, I would imagine so many women can relate to your experience even today um and and it does make us all feel a lot less alone in how we managed our first births. Um, but then also you give such a beautiful example of what is possible and what we need to know and what is necessary and how we need to be held in that birthing space. So um, thank you, <laughs> firstly.
2: I'm very happy, very happy. Yes. Yeah. yeah,
1: but I'd love like one of the things that really hit home for me, which I feel like does doesn't get discussed nearly enough, um, was your term labor bypassing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I think also flows on to so many different aspects of life. But I'd love you love for you to explain to our viewers what um labor bypassing is, and how that's affecting us today
2: yeah so this is um you know there's something good about getting old and having a broader perspective or a longer timeline of perspective because you know it's 45 years or something now that I've been in the birth scene and I'm going to sort of go round about a few things to come to to directly to your the question but one of the key things that i now understand is so important to be able to speak to is that i was involved in birth before epidurals came in or as possibly you've heard me say many many times the fucking epidural came in and valid <laughs> yeah, that has shaped so many different aspects also i was giving you know i was involved in the birth scene really when um I mean, births was happening in hospital. The home birth scene then was quite... We were the renegades. Um, but in the hospital scene, still pretty much... Um, the, uh, there was disturbance and they were taking baby... You know, the babies were taken to the nursery and so on. And certainly my own first birth story in England speaks to the fact that there were interventions, but not nearly to the rate that we have them now. And one of the key factors has been the epidural that has made that social change as well as practice change. Um, and so then I started to see that happening more and more. And so at a social level, just starting to feel like, okay, well, now with what's happening in the birth scene, for firstly, the, the use of synthetic oxytocin all the time for the induction or the speeding up, you know, augmentation, or of course the Caesarate now through the roof. So um, and then the epidural, which I mean, it's such a seductive thing, so seductive, but many, many women don't understand the consequences of that seduction. And so with all of that, then I started to talk see that at a social and cultural level, shifting from when I first started, and I started to call it the Labour Bypass era. Yeah. So that if women want to now. Okay, just before I say that, you, me, all of us who work in the birth scene know that all of these interventions have their place. They are absolutely brilliant. They are useful to, to some mums, some babies. We're privileged to live in a country where we can access them when we need them. There are many, many women around the world who need these interventions and can't access them. So I'm not having a go at the interventions per se. Yeah? Mm-hmm. They all have their place and brilliant. However, they've slipped out of the bounds of what we might call medical need and have shifted into the realm of social choice, and not only social choice, but now social expectation. So, this is what I call the labor bypass era, which is that if women want to, and you know, we can, they can, but many of them don't know the consequences. Mm. So, if they want to, they don't have to labor. They can have the elective Caesar. Yeah, so they don't have to labor. Or if they want to labor, they can have it, um, it can happen at a, at a time which is sort of to their choosing. I'll talk about the system in a little while, but I'm just thinking in terms of women's choices now in this, what I'm calling this labor bypass era. Mm-hmm. They could have their baby induced to be more convenient. They could, um, of course, then if they're labouring, they can have the epidural and not have to engage. So yeah, they can play Angry Birds or watch their favourite telly programme. Or my
1: mum read Vogue while she pushed me out.
2: <laughs> so, in terms of that thing about labour bypass. Focusing on the word labour, you know, the work of. Mm. The work of surrendering, the work of working with those contractions, working with that functional physiological pain, working with your body, working with your baby. So when I say labour, I'm using it from that point of view, which is what we still say women are labouring when they're they're birthing. Um, Well, now in present birth culture, you don't have to have to maybe weird, but then there are big consequences about that and I feel like where where
1: women are choosing these very seductive options of not having to feel pain not having to work I mean the number of people who are told don't be a hero um, just take the pain meds why would you want to put yourself through that yep. when you go for like women who are going for those options, are not being told the risks, the side effects and the flow on effects of when you choose these interventions, when you choose these pain mediators or whatever you want to call it. Um, Yeah. And and I feel like so, you know, yes, women can choose it, but it's it's still not informed consent (laughs) when they're doing these things, which is just something that boggles my mind and I mean uh, over the last few years I guess informed consent became a very uh shady topic.
0: (laughs) What even is it? I don't even think it's a
1: thing anymore. (laughs) Um but yeah that that you know I mean I I remember attending my first birth classes they were the hospital birth classes um Mm -hmm. and for the most part People were asking about the cocktail of drugs they can use, like how they can make it easier, how they can reduce any pain. They don't want to, you know, they, they didn't want to have to work. And I just feel like one of the things that we really need to be educating women about children about is that life is work (laughs) like you can't you don't just get the shiny prize at the end having done nothing and I think if you go for that method of like anything in life but birth being one of the biggest you're gonna suffer some real consequences well it's initiation right and it comes in
0: stages like your baby is born it's hard it's not it's like not physically easy and then when your baby's six weeks old and they wake up it's hard Mm -hmm. and then when they're six months they get their first tooth and that's hard and then when they're two they might get a testosterone boost and that is freaking hard (laughs) there's no you can't bypass through the hard and I feel like birth is the first one yeah pregnancy if you have a hard pregnancy that (laughs) could be hard too but you can't like you have to get through it yeah and you do you do you have to you have to endure it and you have to learn. And I feel like there's something to be said about becoming better and levelling up as a woman, as a parent, every time you overcome the hard, you can't just say, I'm not doing it. It's same in marriage. Like it's hard. You just, you have to still do it. You can't just tap out and think that
2: you're going to have a good outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's, there's an, also, I think that there, there's something about, for me as an educator, educating about, well, what it, Why is it worth doing the hard? You know, what are you missing out if you don't do the hard? And um, the epidural is a key part about that. And and, uh, so this is what I mean in terms of being around before epidurals came in. And I often, when I'm talking about this, feel like I need to sort of beg forgiveness of all the women having babies since that point because when they first came in, those of us working particularly I was in the home birth scene, but also more generally in what we called natural births at that point and birth centres. We had in Melbourne a number of birth centres, so women who were wanting natural birth. Um, We, yeah, when we heard about epidurals, we were thinking, ah, they're going to be, you know, what a brilliant thing. That is going to be brilliant for what we could see, small numbers of women where things were really not going well in the labour, maybe maybe in a very difficult uh, position or something, and that the epidural could just really be so magic for that sort of small number of birth situations that could benefit from that intervention. Little did we know, and this is what I feel like I have to apologise for, to not have had the foresight to understand that, in fact, what would happen with the epidural was that it would just hijack the whole show so that's what's happened now and so women coming to have their babies now and this is probably at least the last 10 years maybe even 15 the epidural is in everybody's mindset so it's not only in the women coming to their births but their partners not only that but it's also unfortunately and certainly in the in the mindset of the medical obstetric teams and what have you and the anaesthetists and what have you but sadly it is also in the mind of so many of the midwives that the epidural exists as a seductress (laughs) as a temptation if not um, I mean that's one step away from it is to be at least tempted by it but mainly it's just really wholly um, embraced that this is the way to go this is the way to do it and, of course, it does, well, it's obviously that seduction is very strong, but what we know is that it entirely hijacks the birth, and this is part of women are feeling like it's, it's a gift to them without really understanding what it then means. And I, I talk now a lot about the thank goodness birth. Yep. So women are hearing, women, pregnant women, they tell me, and I know this is happening, is that they're hearing also when they say they're pregnant, you know, and then they're gonna get all their friends and family around them I'll tell them tell them birth stories. And that um, one of the huge birth stories that gets told is the thank goodness birth. I was particularly if they're saying they're gonna have a home birth or what have you, or oh, well, thank goodness I was in that hospital and they could save the baby and they could do this and they could do that and they could do that, and then they had to do this and la 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 la, that whole litany of the thank goodness. Um and occasionally, a very, very occasionally, maybe that's fully true. Yeah. And thank goodness, yes. But in most cases, so what I tell the women and partners that I'm educating or who will listen to me in any way, shape, or form, is that if you ever hear a thank goodness story, you need to just gently, gently try and unpack that story and nearly always you will find the start of that whole thank goodness journey is the epidural. Mm. And if you know they've had an epidural, then step back and take that on board instead of because I think when newly pregnant women are hearing these thank goodness stories over and over and over and over again I mean it must terrify them I mean, how often I mean unless they're embedded in a very small sort of network who are having who are savvy and who are making choices and having those much more straightforward births hard though they are the hard work of it um, but hearing these thank goodness stories all the time then without really understanding and pulling that apart, then it must be just terrifying and build more and more fear about that birth doesn't work or women's bodies don't work or babies don't know what they're doing or whatever. Um, So then they're, of course, running much more adrenaline in their bodies and so on and just freaking out about birth before they're even in it. So I... Give that advice, and I would to any of your listeners that if you're hearing about a thank goodness birth, just gently, gently try and get a little bit under the story and find out what were the choices that the woman made. Certainly, was an epidural involved, and then pretty much you can understand that that cascade is is really out of that those sort of choices and and taking that on board for yourself to understand, no, that it's not about birth itself not being trustworthy or not working. It's about what we're doing about it. It's about the social and cultural context now about this labour bypass era that you shouldn't have to, you poor thing, the pitying, the pitying of labouring women, the demonising of labour pain. This is the other thing that the epidural has done. Demonising labour pain was once, I'm sure, forever. You know that intensity of a labour was seen as exactly as you were saying, Chloe. Um, that sort of rite of passage, that that aspect of yeah, moving through something that is transformative and something that is is demanding and both physically, emotionally. And I mean, we want to be strengthened. It's it's a tough, it's a tough gig giving birth to our babies, but it's an even tougher gig being you know mother, father, parent to these babies. Um, so that tempering that comes through that tough gig, so um, pain and all, that um, that's part of the part of the journey, and understanding that and making the choices that will enable that is one thing. But this demonising of the pain now means that yeah, we're pitying labouring women for having to do it, and then of course we're wanting to take away that pain, and the epidural can do it, but at great cost. Because we know that you know, once the epidural goes in, maybe we're going to come back around to talk about oxytocin a little bit more later, but just to say this as I'm on the roll with this fucking epidural. <laughs> um, so once an epidural goes in, it starts to play around with the hormones and really then, before I say this, I've got to say something else. <laughs> <laughs> I want yeah. to frame... You can do the editing later. Um, um, we need to frame the difference between what I call queen oxytocin and synthetic oxytocin. I think that women and their partners coming into uh, to the birth scene or had their babies or what have you, everybody's familiar with this idea now, I think, of oxytocin. And the word oxytocin is used willy-nilly here and there, but we need to understand there's quite a difference between what I'm saying is queen oxytocin, which is the oxytocin which is coming out of the mother's body and also the baby's body and actually anybody who else is in the birth scene, who, if they're attuned and in the, that sort of surrendered state to be able to be present in that way. So queen oxytocin, a multitasking, glorious hormone. It's not only in the birth scene, you know, it's across life. But queen oxytocin in the context of the birth, is doing, is is multitasking. Yes, driving the contractions. Driving the contractions, but also, so that means opening the mother's body, but also queen oxytocin is, crosses the blood-brain barrier and is opening the mother's heart and having her ready to fall in love with her baby and the bonding and the baby as well. The baby's own oxytocin systems are working to... um, you know, drive it towards that opening and readiness to bond. So we want that that juicy, juicy, juicy stuff. The other thing about queen oxytocin, and this is why I did births for so long, because really, pretty well anybody, particularly if you're in the normal birth scene, they are oxytocin junkies, yeah. We're all out in that vibe because oxytocin, queen oxytocin, naturally occurring oxytocin. It's in the environment, you know, but it's coming from the mother's body. It's like a pheromone. So it's there. We're all falling in love. I know some young people probably go to raves or something. Like that. <laughs> have that vibe somehow. Or other, but in the birth room, you can have it when Queen Oxytocin is doing her work and that mum is doing her work. So Queen Oxytocin, yes, we want that, multitasking it opens the mother's body, prepares the baby for birth and then prepares the two of them for falling in love and everybody else in that space who is also connected with that loving vibe through the sort of pheromone effect, if you like, um, we're all falling in love. And I think that's probably how it has always been in the village. Mm -hmm. The baby is welcomed into not just the mother's arms but into a wider circle of people who are bonded to that baby, these human babies. They're pretty... Dependent on you know people to care for them for quite some time, so queen oxytocin that's that's how it is sort of, I guess, supposed to be. And for me, I've been lucky enough to be around that over and over and over and over again, just living that vibe. Um, however, we have synthetic oxytocin, yeah, a lot of people as I say, don't make this differential. And synthetic oxytocin, apparently the chemical makeup of the synthetic form as well as the organic, if you like, or the the, um, queen oxytocin that I'm talking about, the chemical makeup is pretty much the same, but something about the delivery system in the body is different. Um, Queen oxytocin, Yes, through the body and also into the brain. So this is that thing about opening those thoughts and feelings in the heart for the bonding. Synthetic oxytocin, all it does is drive contractions and open the body. So we're not getting that heart engagement. Would we call it opening the body? Because I do feel like the
1: synthetic oxytocin is often when you'll hear about tearing and... Uh, like a number of other issues that happen in those births and it f- like and i'm just going off instinct here but it feels like it doesn't really open the body so much as just force the contractions and force that body open so yeah, yeah. It's, I f- it
2: does. yeah it's interesting yeah, and that's an important part of language to use in that mm. so whether it's, it's forced i mean oxytocin opens the body too Queen oxytocin does, but, yes, it's forced. And not only that it's the way it drives the contraction, but also the the sort of procedures around it also. Because once synthetic oxytocin is up, driving those contractions, um, there's a whole timeline set of things that come into place that then put a whole lot of pressures on other aspects of how long you can do this part and that part and the other thing. But also, if it's... um, synthetic oxytocin it's not crossing the blood-brain barrier it's not connecting out into the the network of people around so that whole love vibe is not part of that story i mean at a hormonal level i mean as as creative human beings you know we can we can overcome that we can we can use our mind to you know fall in love with those babies and what have you but evolution would really have it that queen oxytocin is doing that and then the rest of us follows along. That instinct to to be there, to fall in love and to take care of that baby, which comes out of that hormonal mix, um, is there and then the practices that follow. We can overstep that. And, I mean, um, you know, darling Sarah Buckley, who's done all that brilliant work on hormones um, and continuing to do in her PhD, So, she is talking about now, given that this labour bypass is so entrenched and that synthetic oxytocin is driving so many of the labours. I'll come back to the link with epidural in a moment. um, But she's talking about, and certainly in the hospitals, they're now talking about this thing about filling the gap, filling the hormonal gaps. So, if we're using synthetic oxytocin, and synthetic oxytocin, links so strongly with epidural, Um, what we then have to start, and that those numbers are so, so strong, I'm going to lay out some numbers in a minute just to to let listeners know, um, that, okay, we maybe know how much are we going to pull this back and how quickly. And so what we need to be also thinking about is if we're missing out on these key hormonal drivers, that have been part of our evolutionary history and have worked for so long until we're now interfering with them so strongly. Um, how do we try and pay catch up with that in terms of um, yeah, filling those hormonal gaps? And some of the emphasis now is on that golden hour after birth of making sure that, however, the baby's born, that skin to skin happens and that uh, we're encouraging that first hour of connection between the mother and baby to try and rejig or, maybe that's not quite the word, but sort of tap into some of the instinctive and hormonal things that have been missed out on because of the way the birth has gone. So maybe I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but I just want to finish a few things about that epidural. So the epidural, once it's in, then it blunts somehow or other the queen oxytocin system. So then we have to put up synthetic oxytocin, and then that, you know, changes the nature of what's happening in the mother. It certainly takes the functional physiological pain of the labour away. And so then when that labour bypasses, like the mother is, she doesn't necessarily have to stay engaged with what's actually happening. And I hear those stories, you know, of them just watch telly with your partner or. I sort of half-jokingly say, oh, you could just play angry birds through the you know through the rest of the labour. It's like there's a disengagement that happens, and that's happening at a hormonal level, so many women don't understand that. Um, and that then it's more likely, certainly we have to put the, put the synthetic hormone oxytocin drip up, which then generally will lead to a forceps or vacuum birth, or many babies do not like this cocktail, of the hormones and the epidural drugs and, of course, start to complain and so then we go to the Caesar. So that cascade of interventions that then women are often talking about this thank goodness birth or thank goodness, you know, the baby's heartbeat went, went low and thank goodness they could save the baby when we did the Caesar and so on, without fully understanding that pretty much most of that cascade in the the general population has been triggered by that epidural and the epidural is sold as a gift to women
1: mm.
2: poor things pity them having to do that work all that pain um, but at then great cost to what is actually then happening to the birth and the baby and the mother's body and and the trauma that comes when particularly if women then start to unpack that and work out what's happened and start to see that somehow or other they were, you know, in, a, in moments of what I call, if you've read my first book, that those crises of confidence where it's getting tough, it's hard, you know, the contractions are strong, the, the functional physiological pain and starting to really feel like you need some really good solid support or that it's too much for you and the cultural message is your poor thing, you shouldn't have to do it anymore and we can save you and we can make it okay and then they fall into that that um yeah, weakened position of not being supported to keep working with the contractions, to some good eye to eye contacts and breathing with, some encouraging different positions, or all of those things that can help women to move through those crises of confidence. Instead, at that point, the epidural comes in, and then that whole cascade of interventions happens, and maybe even in the early time after the birth, they they can they just feel like oh well, this is you know my body doesn't work or my baby was imperiled, or something, rather than they can take that on board at face value. But often later, as they unpack, they feel that sort of larger sort of cultural betrayal or the maybe betrayal is too strong in the moment, but feeling let down or abandoned mm-hmm. in that distress of working with those stronger contractions, Maybe they've had, I would say that they've had an archetypal expectation that there will be somebody there to meet them when they're in those strong contractions, those midwives, those grandmothers, those mothers, those who've been there before to meet them, eye-to-eye contact. Yes, it's hard. Yes, you can do it. Yes, let's keep going. But I think there's a deep archetypal betrayal there, but certainly at the social and cultural level I think that women as they start to unpack this, start to feel there's a betrayal too about the system that they took on board and made their choices about as culturally we tell them that they should, um, has let them down at crucial moments that then has set off this cascade. Mm -hmm. I think a lot
0: of our listeners have probably had one of those birth experiences that have really catapulted them into Going from, I mean, some of our guests even have had those types of thank God births, yep. um, and then you know had subsequent pregnancies and births, and then you know led them to having beautiful free births and you know those incredibly healing births. And what I would love is to encourage that empowered birth at home for our listeners who are just you know they're never going to walk into a hospital because most of most of our listeners are beyond that. But really turning it around and encouraging and empowering these women and partners of these women to go into birth at home either with a doula, with a midwife or themselves and just have that, you know, restored complete trust and faith in their bodies and their babies.
1: And and every part of their bodies like – ...that hormonal response that is there for a reason. Like the reason we labour is there like because it leads to the bonding. It leads to the release of breast milk. It leads Mm. to the entire group of people who are there. And whether that's just you, your partner and your children... ...or midwives or close friends or family... ...all falling in love with that baby to look after that baby. The love is there it's so like every single aspect of laboring of being like going through that. And I mean, for some people it's a walk in the park. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) and I've experienced both where it's been like a 26 hour slog to three hours of Mm. like, I didn't even know. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, so births that do all look different, but, but I think the problem is yeah, I think the problem is we've just got this we've been we're
0: so overexposed to the shit we're so overexposed to the trauma we're so overexposed to oh but birth is dangerous or um babies babies die, can die you die. can die, they just die all the time. um you know all of these things can happen like why would you be so stupid to birth at home it's just it just seems so dangerous like ...why would you not just cancel out that risk but from my perspective... ...and I know yours, and I know yours, Rhea... ...if you put your foot into a hospital you are way more likely to end up being treated... ...with all of these interventions and leaving that hospital feeling completely bruised and battered. And
1: um, and even if you walk out of the hospital with your oxytocin high still... ...and you could probably speak to this more than I can, Rhea... But it, you know, six months down the track, a year down the track, when breastfeeding hasn't gone right, when you're, you've are you got postnatal depression, when you haven't been able to bond with your baby properly, when, you know, whatever range of issues have come up for you, then you start thinking about, you know, can like often you'll get asked, oh, did you have a forceps delivery or oh, did you have um, syntocin or synthetic Mm. oxytocin and and you'll start to piece together and be like oh hang on wait yeah actually when that nurse told me that I was being too loud while I was laboring that actually did make me feel like I needed to numb the pain a bit or you know and, and all of a sudden your your birth that And God, I've just, I've listened to so many birth stories and especially in hospital and you hear it every time, like women who are just like, it's such a good birth in hospital. But then they list all these things and in their mind, they're still like, oh, but it was so good. But I'm like, that lady, (laughs) give her a bit more time and she's going to start linking the reason why she had postnatal depression, like why she, like all these issues came up from her afterwards and then that's going to manifest as trauma and then when you fall pregnant again is generally when you kind of switch on to oh I don't want postnatal depression again you start looking into what causes that or you know and that might lead you down the track so yeah sorry sorry, I took that off no no what I really (laughs) want to do is just
0: I really want to speak to the person who's ready for a home birth or thinks they're ready they may have had a traumatic birth and they want to feel empowered they want to just Allow their body. They want a physiological birth, and you know we're lucky enough to have had. I mean, I was. I mean, I. It's been a journey from my first to now, and you know I always thought I had a great first birth, but I, there was intervention. I had my waters, um, and my membrane. I, what do you call it? Um, Stretching speed because mm. I was yeah. forty-two yeah. weeks. But yeah. my midwife, you know, at the same time, was like, "There's no, there's no relief for you. Like you're just going to do this." So there was no, no, there was nothing on the table. There was no epidural. There was no, like, there was nothing. Like that was just, I mean, she was a home birth midwife, but I did have my baby in the birthing centre. But I was just, so I was very lucky to have a midwife who was like, you're not having anything. (laughs) You're just going to do this, suck (laughs) it up, but I will break your (laughs) membranes." So, yeah, I kind of would love to just, you know, really speak to that person who's, maybe holding some fear but ready, you know, like there's an urge just coming through that wants to have their baby at home um, with or without support from a professional um, but is still feeling maybe the pulls of the fear a little bit.
2: Mm. Um, first thing I need to say is really I'm not across the, the free birth scene. My, when I talk about home birth, it's really with midwives and, um, yeah, with with that medical overview so um but still yes some of the same issues so first of all that that thing of exactly as you say um you're just trying to unpack their if and often i would think that they've already had a baby before and maybe it's been in the hospital hospital birth and then they're starting to unpack these things um that that's important for them to do that secondly um Still to understand aspects about the hormones, yeah. So, separate to birth, although all these things um, play. But I mean, generally, we're you know we're all living busy, 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 busy lives, even through pregnancy. And so, one of the things that I encourage the women who do my workshops and things to really have a sense of in that last. Certainly, the last two months or so of the pregnancy is, you know, are they able to follow their body's demands in terms of when to eat, when to sleep, when to rest, when to be active, when to so just following, being attuned to, and following their following their pregnant body, following their baby that's in their body, and following that rhythm of their bodies. So that, if they're able to do that, you know, mainly, then that's more this is simplistic but this is more than the oxytocin system yeah because they're they're in tune with their body they're following their body they're in the surrender to what's happening with their body in as much as they can in their lifestyle and that will be preparing them for that surrender for the birth and that's all part of oxytocin it's more complex than that but we'll just talk about it in a simple form formula Um, so whenever i'm doing workshops and things i ask women that and pretty well all of them you know very few women can put their hand up and say yeah i can follow my body in late pregnancy i can follow the attunement of what my body needs what my baby needs mostly then the opposite to that is that you're on the clock you know, that you have to get up at this point to be able to do this, to do that, to do the other. You have to be, you can only eat at this point when it's your lunch break or this or that or the other. And so that they're they're following what a clock is saying or what the day requires. And that then means that they're going to be more in their adrenaline system. So that those stresses are there. And for women then to come to be ready to, to surrender to the births and to be surrendering to their baby and, i.e. more in their oxytocin system, but if they they haven't dropped into that because of their lifestyle, because of demands and pressures or because of just lack of awareness, modern life, social life, um, to be busy rather than to be in a, yeah, starting to, to slow down and tune in, then that can be playing in whether then they go into, you know, if they're going to go into labour or they go overdue, or so on, or sometimes their body systems get so stressed that, in fact, um, they go into labour a bit earlier than would be wise, things like that. So that thing of yeah, how their lifestyle is, how they're supported to be able to really surrender, to stay attuned to their bodies in late pregnancy, this is part of that oxytocin system. So that's one thing. And, of course, that requires lots of support. It requires lots of support at the personal level, but it also... Requires understanding and support at a cultural and social level, and I don't think we've got that anymore. For, for mm. they're expected to just you know be busy, be busy, be busy doing this, this, and this, and then they then somehow or other we just have the baby and get the baby out and then get back to whatever that busyness was. Well, we know that that is not actually how how it has been, should be, and so on. So that plays into the oxytocin system, pre oxytocin system, very important for women to
1: understand that um I do love actually Rhea that um in I I think it's early on in birth with confidence you do talk to people who are really keen whether it's first or subsequent births um to have a natural birth and to have a physiological birth and you ask the questions like have you trusted your intuition before and have you I think I'm um paraphrasing here so might not be exactly these words but it was it was very much asking questions like have you done hard things and overcome them like do you challenge yourself do you trust your intuition do you follow that or are you like you know governed by what's around you and what other people think and say and feel and I think that's a really important thing I think even, you know, in pregnancy or preconception to consider if you're going into birth as well. Because if you, every time you have a headache, take a Panadol and push on rather than, okay, I'm listening to my body, I've got a headache, what do I need? I need hydration and rest. Or if you're, you know... Any any form of numbing, like if you go to a gym class and when it gets too hard, you lay down <laughs> rather than hey, push through <laughs> Look, and it, it, sometimes it's the right thing to do. You know, never being able to challenge yourself or accomplish, you know, find those small accomplishments in life that will all translate. And I really liked um, that concept because it does. …it switches your mindset from just, I want a f- physiological birth. And I loved that you used um, that rebellious teen um, <laughs> energy… …opposed to coming from a, a more grounded place. Because I've definitely entered into many a things in both <laughs> in both ways. And I had never recognised it in myself until I read that. Um, but, yeah, rather than coming at it from that yeah rebellious teen energy where I'm, I'm against the system and I'm not going to do this, it needs to really come from a deeper place that is more, okay, I need to re – like if I've not been using my intuition, I need to retrain that up and I need to start listening to my gut and I need to start listening to my body and the signs and signals. And, I, I mean, I remember in my first pregnancy I actually stopped taking – Um, Panadol I refused to take Panadol even though that was my go-to prior to pregnancy. As soon as I found out I was pregnant, I was like, I'm not taking any Panadol um, because I was like, one, I had a a little bit of um, fear around any kind of medications after learning about, is it formaldehyde, Mm. formaldehyde? (laughs) the anti-nausea drug that went around? Um, And I was like, well, what what could that do (laughs) I don't know that might have been a bit irrational but I was also like I'm not I don't want to have medications I don't like feeling numb ever in the birth and I'm like I gotta start now not numbing out so um I really like that I just wanted to bring some attention to that as well because it is one of those things that you can start preconception or during your pregnancy starting to build back that trust in your body that like connection to your body because even if you're busy 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 you can still you're still going to get signs like your body's still going to tell you things and whether you can lay down or not coming from two moms who have four kids already and sometimes it's not possible to lay down yeah. I can still recognize when I need to lay down and yeah. note it and be like okay my body needs rest I may not be able to give it right now but I know yeah. I need it at least I'm not numbing out to it so little things
2: like that anyway I'll let you continue yes. <laughs> I think also sort of adding on to that two other things that I would say, speaking to um, maybe it's your your audience, yeah, Um, that I think it's a gift to you and your baby to spend time, and I'm sort of taking another step from what you're saying too, um, to spend time really becoming habituated to some form of relaxation music, some form of, I mean, it might be your own mantra, it might be a a specific relaxation practice, you know, or it may be something that is just your own or it may be that you sit out in your beautiful spot in your garden and just watch the lead, whatever it is that is that calming. Um, I think it's always good to have it linked to some sort of music, whatever sort of music that is, and that women in that... Well, hopefully they're doing it in their lives anyway, different, you know as part of just general care. But certainly in late pregnancy, to do that really regularly as a deliberate practice, and if it's linked to music, then of course it means that the mother is becoming habituated to that particular music. and also their baby, is becoming habituated to that music because we know, you know, babies, their their hearing is complete by about seven months, six and a half, seven months. Um, And so this is a great tool for late pregnancy. It's a great tool for labour. It's a great tool for um, once the baby's born and soothing the baby if the baby's um, unsettled, that there's that whole thing of a set of practices about, yeah, mental emotional body as well as the auditory with the music as being a trigger and certainly for you know partners at birth and whatever they need to know what this music is and they need to know you know that when they switch it on if it's getting if a crisis of confidence is happening or what have you then to put that music on and that can just help but but the work has to be put in beforehand to become habituated to that It's mm. a great gift to those kids I know that my grandchildren, you know, there's particular music that their mums were using in their pregnancies that are still, when they're eight and nine, if they're getting a bit hairy, then that can be very useful. So that's one thing, little trick that I would say. Maybe it's not a little trick, it's a life hack. I think that's <laughs> what it is. life hack. Um, a birth, life, parenting hack. Um, so that's one thing I would say. Um, another thing in all of that that I would say is... So that's working on the physiology and the thing about tuning as much as they can in late pregnancy to are they in their oxytocin system, the relaxation system, the thing of following their body and tuning to their body and following it in as much as they can, or are they in their stress systems, and that's not going to be helpful in terms of the the labour or um, going into labour and also the labour continuing and also the pain levels in labour. That following all of those things. The other other thing I think, and maybe, like if, if women are living quite active lifestyles, then probably the positioning of the baby in the body is, is going to just happen. And I guess for many, many of us, if we think back to back, 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 when women's lives were probably much more physical. And that they sh- were shifting and walking and moving and digging and lifting and carrying and whatever. And there's a whole range of physical movement that they were doing that during the pregnancy as well. And that the baby was aligning itself to the to all of those actions in the mother's body. And so babies would be generally, you know, a bit better aligned for the birth. Mm-hmm. But of course, one of the things that's happening now is that many many women are living very sedentary lives. Many of us and perhaps even all the way through pregnancy. And so there's that sort of aspect in the body where the mother is not shifting and moving so much, but more just sitting as, well, you two, got your legs up and got your pelvis open. So <laughs> good. I'm just Don't sitting you know, with my legs crossed <laughs> in, the, in the very office-based work sitting, and which is what lots of women are doing during pregnancy. And so then we're getting many more misaligned babies and so babies not being in great positions. This makes for a much harder labour, generally a much more painful labour, particularly if that baby's around in that posterior position, which they are more likely to go into with those sort of slouched positions. If you're sedentary in terms of sitting office type and then come home and sort of lay back on the sofa and slouching back, of course this encourages that baby into that posterior position and then we know we've got a very tough labour and Tough labor for babies as well. So, I think that the um, you've probably both heard of spinning babies coming out of America, mm. and they I think have tapped some of this to, to really try and um, have women understand that what used to be way right back in our prehistory where women were much more active during late pregnancy and the baby would be more aligned now, mo- many of our lifestyles and don't facilitate that and that women need to be much more conscious about what they're doing and that I think spinning babies have really tapped into that pretty strongly and quite well in terms of the what they call I think the daily essentials in terms of some physical movement and and if they do have to be sitting at desks and whatever then to modify it like this that and the other way to encourage that baby into that brilliant position so this is a gift to the mother and the baby because a harder slog for the babies if babies are not in great position, it's certainly a hardest log for the mother and um so that's another thing i think for to be attuned to Mm. what um i
0: know you've you've witnessed literally thousands of births in your career when you witness women have these things like the fun they've got the fundamentals in place and they live in a certain way they're very connected to their bodies they're very connected to their babies, their intuition... ...and really trust the physiological process of birth. How often... (laughs) I I know this is a big question. But I just want to... I feel like it's an an inspiring thing for me to hear... ...especially if I'm about to give birth. But we've obviously read the studies where home birth is... ...home is the safest place to give birth majority of the time. But how many times does this go wrong? Like if you got all the fundamentals in place is it likely or in your in your career has it has it kind of end how am i trying to say this would you say that like majority of your like the outcomes are usually always positive when the woman has all the fundamentals in place yeah
2: yeah
0: yeah
2: and do the work and Mm. prepare to do the work and of course um need to have people around who also are not bringing a whole lot of fear into that situation, mm. not out and not laying their thing on the, on the mother's story. Um, and that requires I mean the, the other thing to think about is you know the partners. And if the partners are the fathers of the baby, which is predominantly how it is, Um, what do they know about birth? Hmm. What do they know about birth? If women are relying on a partner who knows, has not felt this, has not given birth before, they've been born before, but what has been their birth imprint from their own births? And so then, you know, we have that thing about the partners freaking out. Seeing this intensity and seeing this
1: potency. Yeah. And that's something that we've discussed before. Just, um, I mean, we've said it a few times how during pregnancy and especially during birth, like you're so vulnerable. And it is yeah. so important to make sure that, like, I would say it needs to start in pregnancy. You're keeping your, like, feel safe from negativity from other people's stories and Mm -hmm. even from people who hold negative stories um and and yeah and I would extend that to your partner where I guess education comes in really really important so you know, natural birth courses, so that they can wrap their head around the natural process and how this is actually genetically what we are made to do, and how it's meant to unfold, and the pain and intensity, and any any part of it is actually how we're designed to be able to process a birth, and then that continues on into the life of the mother and the child. Um, yeah, which I think. Like ...is is an important takeaway. Um, But we... um,
0: But I think it's also because my partner has recently just said... ...like whatever birth you want, whatever the environment, whoever you want... ...obviously I support that. But as a man, my mind is how am I going to protect you... ...and what do I do, worst case scenario. And there's nothing that a woman or a mother can do that's going to change how they approach mm-hmm. the scene, like their job is to do that.
1: So I feel like probably inviting someone yeah. into the birth space that you know holds a real reverence for it and yeah. also is able to relax into it. Yeah. Um,
2: can, I, can I just jump in here with some of my favourite stuff? Yes. So this is from <laughs> the second book. Second book, I think it's Chapter 7 in the second book. And so uh, I talk about but archetypes of birth, you know, the birth ar- archetypes. And if we think about um, us as human species and women in the human species, you know, we've been giving birth forever, ever, 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 ever. And really, forever, ever, ever, we've been surrounded by women when we've been giving birth. And they've been our mothers our grandmothers or our aunties or the other women in the village or so on. So I feel like deep in contemporary women's psyches, there's still a sort of an archetypal form about when they're pregnant, when they're going into birth, what sort of energy they want around them to feel safe. Because this is what's laid down in our collective unconscious: it's to have women's energy around us and women who've given birth before and know what they're doing. Whereas socially and culturally, that's not what is on offer for most women when they're giving birth. But that archetypal form, I think, stirs in the mother's, the pregnant woman's consciousness, and that she's seeking some of this energy in the people who are around her. But socially and culturally, mostly women are, apart from in small pockets, women are working with strangers in their pregnancy and birth, and the only person they know is their partner, generally um, the father of the baby. And so often these fathers get, um, and they're willing, they want to be there. And as you say, Chloe, that I mean, the archetypal form for a father about birth is to be the protector of the space. Yeah? Mm-hmm. That sometimes works out in, in the birth to be misaligned, and they try and protect the mother from the work of it, i.e., the pain. Yeah? But the projection from the mother, these deep archetypal, onto who she knows, her partner, is that he be mother, is that he be able to be grandmother is that he be sister who knows what to do and, and exactly how to be in that birth space um, because this is what the archetypal yearning is for women, is to have these qualities of energy and knowledge around them for the birth. And But socially, who they're encouraged to choose to be the only person that they know at the birth is their partner. And then they're in the hospital mainly mm-hmm. ho- and with people who are not fulfilling any of those roles so at the home births um women maybe are more attuned to being able to make those choices so there still is i think that deep yearning to have that woman who knows mm. who knows about birth who knows the journey who when you're feeling a bit lost in a crisis of confidence that you can look in their eyes and feel like yes it's possible because there's that steadiness in the whether it's a midwife, whether it's your best friend, or it's your own mother or your grandmother, um, who trusts birth and trusts yeah, this is a tricky bit here, or this is that you have got to go deeper now, or what have you, and they can go into it. So I think I talk about the archetypes: you know, the birthing god- goddess archetype, the grandmother archetype, the mother archetype, the sister archetype, the, um, the birth. I guess we'd say a the midwife. There's a midwife archetype. And then often the father, the mother, is putting all of those archetypes into an expectation, deep, unconscious, sometimes fully conscious, expectation that the partner can carry all of that. Mm-hmm. Pull back. They can't carry it all. Mm-hmm. And then, um, then after the birth, you know, they both can be feeling like they failed one another, which is not great when you've got this new baby and you're... You both need to be at the top of your game with the baby once it's out um so anyway that's i love that chapter i love that stuff i talk about it a lot in my my training you know i train women who want to be birth attendants and doers and we do a lot about work about that about what what pro, what archetype is likely to be projected onto women who are doing this work and i mean some of them it's definitely going to be sister energy that will be projected onto them some of them I mean, if they're asking me to a birth now of course it's grandmother energy sometimes maybe even birthing goddess you know, i
1: would
0: say birthing goddess yeah,
2: yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> um, and i think that's a it is a really important thing for us to consider because I, especially where we are um a lot of the women are relying solely on their partner during the birth and it is something to yeah really consider that ...we don't overwhelm them with needing to look after the kids... ...needing to clean up afterwards... ...needing to protect the space for us... ...and needing to be there as our support person as well. So always Mm. something to... um, Well it is,
0: especially because free birth is such a thing... ...a massive, there's a big reclaim in wanting... ...having a desire to free birth. So you've just got your husband in the room... ...and maybe your kids are somewhere... ...and you're asking them to make sure there's no nothing got like they're asking you're asking them to be aware of what's happening in the room to see if there's anything potentially a sign or a signal that something's going wrong look after yep. the kids mm. get me a drink of water and then <laughs> you know hold all of it together yeah it's a lot
1: to ask um, they should be up for the challenge. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> These poor men. The, the other archetype for the men, of course, as well the protector of the space, mm. um, is, of course, lover. Of course, if if the archetype of the lover and the physicality of the lover, then, you, of course, can really be very juicy for the hormones and for the oxytocin. Mm. Um, but, yes, in that context that you're talking about, then I guess there's also some expectation around... Some archetypal expectation about having somebody in that space who knows, who absolutely knows. Mm. Is this okay? Is it not okay? And yeah. that I would say is the midwife archetype. Yeah. Yeah. So Yeah, I'm glad we ironed that out. <laughs> I, think, I think I should should send you my second book. <laughs> Please do. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that so you can at least read that chapter, Chapter 7. Yeah, yeah. a few other things in there that could be useful. Certainly Chapter 2, I think, is all about the fucking epidural, so that would be it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, Ria, thank you so much for coming on. We've we've run out of time, oh. <laughs> looking at the clock, and we could talk to you for ages. Um, but it's really been so awesome to have you here and, um, and bring to our attention and our listeners' attention because I know that we would have quite a few listeners. I mean, of quite a few mothers, but also mothers to be. Um, a small audience there. So, um, thank you so much for bringing this to their attention it's always Mm -hmm. good to have the information before you go into the birth space definitely something that i did not do (laughs) and yeah where can our listeners find you if they want to find more information
2: oh yeah well apparently people tell me that they just have to google my name and they they found me now beautiful (laughs) that's when you know you've made it yeah yeah (laughs) Stay
1: around long enough. Yeah, Stay around long enough. You'll be yeah. top ranked Google. <laughs> <laughs> Rhea Dempsey, not a not a very common name, so <laughs> we should be able to find you. Well, thank you so much again, Ria, and we will hopefully have you on again. <laughs> we might both need a pep talk just going into birth, so we'll yeah. chat no, in when, six when months. <laughs> when are these babies due? April. Mm. Okay, Start of so. April, to mid April. Oh, I say and mentally.
0: Well, we can be honest with Ria. <laughs> <Like> April, April, <laughs> April babies. Oh, well, we're
2: telling everybody else May so they leave us the hell alone. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, but again, we're so in tune with one another. I mean, I visit, you know, in the tribe, the sisters would be ovulating and <laughs> in everything all together we must have
0: actually because our last babies were a couple of weeks apart as well Mm. our fourth babies but we weren't together we were I was in Canada and you were here but we Mm. must have been deeply connected still I feel like we were talking a lot still and and
1: then now well they were they were meant to be eight weeks apart and they ended up only being four weeks apart because I've got a longer gestation and she's got a shorter one so we'll see how these ones go (laughs) beautiful so nice beautiful to have
2: your sisters around Mm.
1: Thank you so much, Freya. Thanks for tuning in to the Road to Wisdom podcast. To join the journey, you can follow us on Instagram at theroadtowisdom.podcast and at www.theroadtowisdompodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We look forward to seeing you next week with more juicy content.